It is time once again for us to take a long rest. It is time now, once again, for us to take a long rest. This week, we are going to be talking with author and content creator J.M. Perkins. You would know him from Tribality and his setting that was successfully funded on Kickstarter called Salt in Wounds. He also has several books out that you can check out as well. So for this week, we are in the throat region of Salt in Wounds City. We are within a tavern called the Herald's Rest, and Boren Tumblethumb has just set down our mugs of ale at the table as we all sit down to take a long rest. Uh, with me this week, as I said, was Braden, Hello. J.M. Perkins, as I introduced earlier, and myself. So we will go ahead and talk a little bit about ourselves and before we get into our characters. Hi, Braden here from Australia. I... I'm joining this because I am a huge fan of Amazing Homebrew, and what we have here is some of the best homebrew I've seen in a very long time, so I'm very excited to be able to uh, join in on this conversation and uh, hopefully gain some inspiration. Hi, I'm Jam Perkins. I'm an author and game designer. Uh, it was a great introduction. Yeah, currently I'm mostly working on the Salt and Moons campaign setting. Uh, we're just releasing the campaign setting document itself, and there'll be more documents coming. But yeah, as I mentioned, that was successfully funded on Kickstarter. Uh, before that, I was a columnist on Tribality. I did a book called The Adequate Commoner, uh, all about kind of the non-heroic style of playing, uh, in that case, Pathfinder, but D&D generally. And yeah, I write a lot. I have a daughter, and I think I'm cool. Yeah, and I'm nodding to myself to convince me of that fact. <laughs> you know, it, it helps to, to really sell it to people who can't see what I'm doing. <laughs> exactly. So we will go ahead and... Uh, get started with our character intros. As you all know, we do a random character generator. You can see find the link to that in the uh, show notes below. And we did a level range of 1 to 10, but other than that, it was uh, first click, random, see what happens. So I ended up um, being the weakling of the group this week. So I am uh, Ander Bushgatherer. I am a Lightfoot Ranger Halfling with my Beast Companion. My companion is a wolf, and since I'm on the shorter side of the halfling height range, I usually use him as a mount to get from place to place. Not quite the warg rider that the famous adventurer Squig was, but I'm pretty set on becoming a great beastmaster someday myself. I do have a bit of a shady background, as I was once a criminal, but I was able to get away. However, one of my friends took the fall for what I for the crime that I committed, and. Well, it does sadden me a little bit. I'm on the outside and gonna try and make up for it, maybe someday. I am playing Quoth, the level 7 Arakokra Paladin, host of the Ancients. Uh, how did Arakokra have like a bird like voice with trills and whistles and whatnot? <laughs> uh, so I will do my very best. Um, hello! <laughs> <laughs> 
It is what it is. It's sticking. Um, Hello. Uh, I am Quaff. I have a very optimistic attitude. And being here in Sultan Ruins, I uh, have set out for a very secret goal. Which I would not tell anyone else, but it is actually to release the Tarasque. <laughs> being an Oath of the Ancients, I am... Uh, <laughs> I am bound to keeping the natural order, and I feel like this city is completely uh, defying that. So that is my secret goal underneath, but otherwise I uh, present myself as a friend to the city, doing anything I can to make sure I fit in and stay positive among my allies here. Now, you actually wear heavy armor, so I am unable to fly, but... uh, The metal that binds me to the earth protects me, but uh, doesn't allow me to have that freedom that a lot of Aarakocra enjoy. And Quaff is slowly uh, losing his optimism because of that. But every morning or two, he'll go out and fly around the city and further realize his goal that this beast needs to be released and the natural order needs to be maintained. Um, can I recommend a sub-goal for you? Absolutely. Yeah, so there is a um, illegal organization in the city called the Circle of Release yes. that is absolutely trying to do what you are trying to do. So maybe your first step, having heard about them, is figure out if they're actually real, because supposedly they're a myth um, that's used for propaganda purposes. And if they are real, maybe reach out and make contact with them. Thank you for the tip. <laughs> <laughs> oh, strange voice from above. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, oh powerful god. Well, I think you have a narrator voice in your head that just pops in sometimes. <laughs> That's it. So I'm actually an acolyte, so perhaps you are my deity. That is fantastic. <laughs> well, technically, Salt and Wound City, he would be the creator god for this, so there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead, JM, whenever you're in. So, hi, I'm Ella Stumbleduck Baron. Now, when I do that voice, just imagine it coming out of a three-foot-tall gnome, because uh, I find that very funny. <laughs> uh, you wouldn't know this looking at me, but I'm a gnome fighter. This is really an eldritch knight. I can stare down a hellhound without flinching. I actually fought in the Binding Wars, but I lost some friends. And, you know, the thing I learned in the Binding Wars is might. It's what's going to win in war. It's gonna, what's going to live in life. It's always the strongest fourth, and I'm going to be the strongest. Um... It's interesting. So his uh, ideal is might, but also his bond is he fights for those who can't fight for himself. That's an interesting pairing. Huh. Uh, let me figure out how I'm going to play that out. Um, and to prove how mighty I am, I take a personal interest in defending those who can't defend themselves. Also, I just want everyone to know, and this is very important, I am never wrong. I have never been wrong in my life. I'm not going to start being wrong now. I would rather eat my armor than have you think I'm wrong because I'm never wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Never wrong. <laughs> I'm gonna say I know a few of those kind of people in real life too. <laughs> oh yeah. Just imagining your uh, your character like walking throughout the city and you see some bigger children picking on like a smaller kid <laughs> and they say something like he's like, Why don't you pick on someone your own size? And you're just like, Yeah <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah. That's that's gonna get them uh, attacked with flaming spear. <laughs> that is fantastically terrible. <laughs> All right. Go ahead, and before we get into the meat of the episode about Salt and Wounds itself, go ahead and tell us a little bit about 
how you came up with the idea, kind of that gradual progression from author, column writer, on to Salt and Wounds creator. Yeah, okay. So I'd be happy to talk about, you know, kind of my arc as a creator, um, where I came from, where I'm going. Yeah, so um, before doing Salt and Wounds, as I mentioned, I wrote for Tribality. Um, I actually wrote for a bunch of uh, third-party publishers. I published a novel. Um, I kind of was all over the place as a writer, which was great. I was finding things out, learning skills. And then um, with the Adequate Commoner, um, I really realized I, I loved gaming and I loved writing for games. So I really shifted a lot of my focus and emphasis, emphasis to that um, and kind of started really focusing on that. Uh, Salt Moons, um, because I haven't actually explained it yet, <laughs> is a city built around the bound Tarrasque, right? So 200 plus years ago, the world had a problem, which is that the Tarrasque was doing what Tarrasque do of going around making a mess of things. Um, and so they raised a huge army, they had a huge battle, um, and uh, they couldn't kill it. This army bound it in place, and then these guys were stuck out in the mountains, um, and then they started getting hungry, and they were cut off from supplies, so they started eating it. And now this is two centuries later, and an entire evil metropolis has grown up around this bound Tarrasque. Uh, of course, it's maybe not the best thing, uh, because they're torturing a creature, admittedly a really bad creature, um, for a long time. Uh, its blood is poisoning the water. Uh, people are being horrifically mutated by the blood. Uh, the city itself is incredibly corrupt and dangerous, but it has the advantage of no one ever starves there. So it's definitely a, absorbed different ways of refugees. Um, and yeah, so as far as where the idea came from, uh, there's been, actually did some research. The idea of eating a regenerating animal is really old. Uh, there's actually a couple instances in Norse mythology. Uh, there's the boar in Valhalla that they eat every night and it just grows back and they eat it again the next night. And also, I believe the god Thor does that in goats. Um, beyond that, really early in D&D, there was the idea of troll larders. Yeah. So kind of the same thing Salton was doing on just like a very scaled down um, version. Uh, there was a forum post a while, a couple years ago, uh, where a guy came up with the idea of a fortress built around the terrace. Um, and then, yeah, uh, there's some, gosh, a bunch of sci-fi episodes where they're eating some huge beast and it keeps growing back, uh, including, what was it? I forget the name of the novel, but it's uh, the, they have a giant chicken heart that just keeps growing uh, called Chicken Little, and that's what they uh -huh. eat in the far future. <laughs> yeah, this idea of a you know eating this regenerating creature has been around for a while. This is my particular spin on it, and the reason I wanted to do it with the Tarrasque specifically is because the Tarrasque, you know, it's always, oftentimes when I've seen it played in game, it's better in theory than in practice, insofar as, you know, it's the end of the world monster, and it's that thing that GMs can kind of throw at their players um, when they've killed everything else. And I really like the idea of changing it a little bit and thinking about how would a unkillable regenerating monster potentially affect the world. And I like in my game design this idea of unexploded ordnance. Um, you know, in World War II, we dropped all these bombs, right? And some of them are still buried, unexploded. And occasionally we come across them and we dig them up. And I really like that idea for game design of the characters moving through a world where there's all this stuff littered in the landscape, either literally or kind of metaphorically, that is potentially going to blow up in their face. And I thought this was kind of the biggest bomb, quote unquote, that could blow up in people's face of like, oh yeah, the city lives this way, but they could be over tomorrow if the thing gets out. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, in terms of my own thinking, uh, I, I, I'm a very much a, a meat eater, um, but I kind of have weird feelings about how we 
raise animals in the 21st century and just like the level of discomfort and pain most of them experience in their lives, right? And it hasn't stopped me from eating me, but I kind of like the idea of translating those anxieties um, in like a fantasy way of instead of this is a problem for millions of animals, right? This is just this one creature, right? And uh, talk, uh, use my kind of fears and my discomfort in a way that I thought would be compelling in a game sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's just kind of some ideas about the basic setup and kind of where I think the ideas came from. That's awesome. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah, there is quite a bit of semblance with that that whole ideal about, you know, it may be helping you right now, but should it all go wrong, it's going to go wrong in a very big way. So that that oh, yeah. is really cool. That was one of the things that drew me to the the whole concept of it is you are living off of something that could very easily end your life if you aren't super careful. And even if you are careful, somebody could ruin that for you. That's fantastic. Oh, oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's just all of us all of us live where some kind of disaster can happen, right? Uh, I, for myself, I'm California, so there could be an earthquake at any time, and it would really wreck my day, right? Um, if not, you know, kill a bunch of people. And we all kind of, in real life, live in these precarious situations. And this is just, you know, a much more extreme a visceral example of these humans living, humans and demi-humans living and thriving, you know, in the shadow of what could be an existential disaster. Exactly. Yeah, I know. Brayden, I think, is the most terrifying uh, with you know Australia and those drop bears. Uh, he keeps telling me about. <laughs> I was you know. about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all fun and games until the drop bears drop. No joke. No joke. And just wait, one day something's going to happen and they're going to classify something in Australia as a drop bear just to screw with everybody. <laughs> I think I think it's more the spiders and the Australian flora and fauna that freak me out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's everywhere. Someone really should make the Australian bestiary where it's just slightly changed actual animals in Australia. Like, there's a hopping uh, marsupial that likes the box and is really good at it. Yeah. <laughs> and you just, yes. you, just make the shark, you just make the spiders a little bit bigger and they're already D&D monsters. Yep. Pretty yeah. much, I've seen, yeah. Um, the barbarian totem warrior. I've seen totems done for, like, particular Australian animals. Ooh. Oh, nice. We have, we have this bird called the magpie. I'm not sure if you guys have it. Similar to a crow, but it has like white uh, mm-hmm. across it as well. And they're notorious for swooping down at you if you come near their nests. So it's it's almost an Australian pastime to purposely go past their nests when you're a child and see how far you can get before you have to run away in absolute fear. <laughs> I do have some uh, childhood trauma from playing a game of cricket when I was about three or four years old, uh, running through this. Uh, open field and then getting attacked by a magpie and not quite understanding what exactly was happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, worst we have here is swans. Uh, my folks live out of the lake and uh, the swans will flat out come at you. And there was one that uh, charged my dad and he uh, took a, a board that almost a full two by four and uh, smacked it to get away. Uh, caught it right in the neck and it didn't even phase the bird. It just kept charging him. Yeah, they sound like the Tarask of the bird, the bird world. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. <laughs> They're just prettier miniature dinosaurs, is how to think about geese and swans. Exactly. Like, pretty, but like, those guys are crazy. Exactly. <laughs> so speaking of the Tarask, a lot of the uh, 
city is built around it, and you would think that a lot of that would, uh, you know, be great for the economy, for the people. They would really love it. But you say there's there's different um, groups involved there that don't necessarily like that. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the political intrigue and craziness that goes on with that? Yeah, so, um, of course, the basic, the, you could split the city into three factions. Um, the biggest one, it would probably be defined as business as usual. Um, these are the aristocrats and the merchants and probably a good portion of the con people. They just kind of want this to continue, right? Uh, they eat, they have jobs, they have homes. This is their whole world. And they don't even really think necessarily a lot about the long-term implications or the risks. It just is, right? Their life. Um, some of them, have, people have been born, lived, and died uh, several times. There have been several generations just in the city. And so it, for them, it's very much normalized. Um, and then you have the groups that, or, or the people, for whatever reason, they're just not okay with this. Um, maybe they're coming at it from, we're torturing this creature and it's evil. Um, maybe they're coming at it from a naturalistic angle of this thing should not be this way. Or maybe they're coming at it from what the army was supposed to do, which is we need to kill this thing. Um, uh, and so those are the people who are really trying to mess up the status quo. Of course, those activities are illegal, uh, but the two main groups that are trying to mess up the status quo are the Circle of Release, that are all about releasing this thing. It's a lot of druids. Um, and a lot of them, too, not only are they uncomfortable with the situation is, uh, a lot of the other megafauna in the world has become more of a problem. Um, and their theory is that the Tarrasque is the um, apex, apex predator, right? So there's more T-Rexes running around eating people because there's not a Tarrasque to eat the T-Rexes. Um, and so they really think this is a cornerstone of, of balance for the world. And then you have the Enders who really are focused on, we need to kill this thing. Uh, how do we do that? Of course, there is a bit of moral ambiguity, right? Because if they accomplish their goal, um, hundreds of thousands of people won't have a food source anymore, right? So you can decide that's a good thing to do. And, and I think that you could easily argue, yes, it is absolutely a good thing to do. But even doing a good act is going to have um, potentially bad consequences for a lot of people. And so I wanted to create a setting where that would be a compelling choice for the characters. And you can have a good character uh, really decide to continue on with the torture and subjugation of this uh, Tarrasque, or you could have a really evil character who wants to release it for whatever reason. And you have people with very different motivations coordinating because it there's that element of moral ambiguity. Um, also, uh, for your listeners, I will reveal a secret. Um, one of the other things, too, that is generally unknown to the city, but there is a small group that knows this, is the um, Tarrasque undying kind of pain has actually formed into an entity, and that entity is seeking to become a god. Um, and its goal, and it's been very successful in this, is to gradually ratchet up the torture of the Tarrasque, because that is kind of its essence and food source. Like, it, it grows and thrives off of the amount of pain inflicted upon the Tarrasque, and it's uh, close to reaching divinity status. That That's is incredible. Yeah, that is. So, again, a lot of different factions coming at this from a lot of different angles. Um, the Tarrasque, if nothing else, represents a ton of resources to a ton of people. And so you have this, again, trying to follow a premise to its logical conclusions and figure out who benefits from this, who suffers from this, and what are they all going to do about it? And how does their relative power and uh, their relative ability to organize shape kind of their the way they move through this game world? And since this entity is growing off the Tarrasque's 
sort of pain and whatnot. Say the Tarasque were to fall, would there be a way for this thing to continue, perhaps off the pain of the hundreds of thousands of starving people that uh, come from it? Yes, yes, probably, but that would probably be a short-term solution. Um, the reason that this thing is forming uh, and it's become so powerful is there's something unique about torture that is without it, right? Because the idea is you can only, barring some kind of magical solution, you can only inflict so much pain on a organism before it just dies, right? Even if it just dies of old age. So this thing is special, this Lord of Agony, uh, whose name is Tesca, is special because the terrestrial just will not die. Um, and so it, it doesn't actually have an alternative that would work long term other than the Tarrasque. Although perhaps it would, if you free the Tarrasque and you were running a long term game, perhaps it would uh, basically conquer a country. And then, uh, you know, that country would be uniquely focused on torture and probably abducting people just to feed this kind of entity that uh, they all worship and feed. That's awesome. And obviously, since the. As if everything goes to how this god, I assume, is very much allied with the uh, forces that desire to keep this thing uh, bound down. Uh, it's really the sort of worst potential option then for the city, as, I mean, the god is going to gain such power that it's eventually going to become, like, the most powerful deity, potentially. Yeah, well, and the other thing, though, too, is um, in the lore, basically this thing has been subtly manipulating the city for a while. Um, and there's potentially things that people could do to minimize the terrestrial suffering, um, which actually might be safer, but it has uh, infected people to make sure that they are doing more horrible, more terrible things to the Tarrasque. And so it's been subtly almost making things less safe. And I haven't finished the uh, adventure path, but if we want to get super spoiler, okay, this is, we'll put like the big spoiler tag over this, right? <laughs> Okay. Uh, the concept I have is um, for the end game of the adventure path is uh, depending on how you're approaching it, um, multiple factions, including the, the Tesca, actually want the Tarras to be released. But Tesca's deal is in order for him to reach a uh, for them, I should say, to reach apotheosis, he needs the Tarras to be free, so it feels a scrap of hope in the way that a Tarras can feel hope. Right? He can feel that sense of like freedom and the absence of pain after centuries of not. So that's put back into this agony engine. It's so much worse for it. Huh. So he actually needs it to be briefly free. Um, but of course, he it has to be like chained again. And it's that uh, risk and reward thing for him where that's what's going to uh, bump up to divinity status as opposed to just being kind of a, a lesser patron. But it's a way that even people who are, you know, worshipping this thing kind of have the same endgame, although they need something to happen after that that the people who are trying to free it can. And also the people who need to kill it it has to be free because its essence is kind of like seeped into these uh, magical harpoons that find it and it has to be uh, released from those for them to have a chance of killing it that is crazy yeah yeah so I like the I mean it's kind of an obvious thing is if you're doing the adventure path and uh, are, you, are you guys familiar with the story trope of Chekhov's gun I, I'm not uh, Chekhov's gun is about theatricality and if you put a gun on a mantle in the first act that gun has to go off by the third act right just following through with the promise, and if you're putting in information, you probably want to pay off. You don't have to always, but generally it's a good idea. So this is kind of Chekhov's Tarrasque. I put the Tarrasque <laughs> up front and center in the first act, and it has to be free by the third act, if only briefly. That is crazy. Well, and I can see a bunch of political 
you know, maneuvering going on there, you know, backstabbing upon backstabbing as uh, different factions try and get each other to help out only to, you know, at the very last second, pull their own thing, you know, at the very end. That's really cool. Oh, yeah. Well, and and the setting is um, as backstabby as the GMs could make it. The uh, aristocratic houses, the Meridian houses, there's 13 of them. They are so long and deep in the schemes within schemes because they just have all the time in the world to do nothing but try to screw over their rivals. Mm-hmm. That the level of um, skullduggery and back and forth, yeah. I and I think everyone has their uh, limit on how much um, lying they can keep in their, straight in their head. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say whatever level of lying and trickery you as a GM can manage to pull off, that absolutely fits in the set. It's almost like the nine hells have entered uh, the material plane with the different uh, arch devils and whatnot constantly scheming. Oh yeah, these are these are like that, that's what they aspire to. These Meridian houses, they they wish they could be that good. They're earnestly trying. They probably have like Hell's Library um, as like uh, their reference material. It's like oh yeah, um, Asmodeus did that. That was clever. I should do something like that. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say I get a little bit of the uh, Dread series, the different houses, uh, Drow houses uh, conspiring out of that. That is really cool. I love that that you can have a party made up of people from multiple factions that have a common goal, but maybe not a common ending to that goal. So that's yes. that's really cool. Like, well, the new book that just released, uh, the Ravenica uh, book with the different guilds and all that. That's. That's really cool. I'm really excited to see what ends up happening with the Adventure Path once it's actually out there in our hands to be able to play, because I can see a lot of my characters trying to outmaneuver the others in order to get their factions in goal. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, and, and again, like uh, one of my game design goals is I want, especially for something like Salt I want the broadest possible range of... Um, player character options to be viable, right? And so depending on how you design, sometimes it really only makes sense for you to have like a good character, right? Especially if you're hanging out with a bunch of other good characters. <laughs> and it's, it's an interesting design challenge to kind of set the table so that there are reasons for both very good and very bad people with very different goals to work together well. And then and then also that makes space for really interesting character act- interactions because as you get maybe closer to your other PCs, uh, does that change your character? Um, are you are maybe you're willing to screw over the city, but are you willing to screw over your party? That's uh, an open question. That'd be very cool if everyone kept their sort of alliances a secret until the very end, and then it's just like a cheesy sort of sitcom where everyone's betraying everyone at the last minute, and it's like twisted every corner. <laughs> exactly. Oh yeah. Uh huh. I find that PvP is generally unfun. But I think if you're gonna do it. I think at the culmination of the campaign, that's the best time to do it. Exactly. Yeah, there's a a story we'll have on another long rest when I get Virgil on about uh, one of his very first characters when I first started doing the Adventuring League uh, stuff for one of the local stores where his paladin took on a uh, half-warlock fighter kind of a multi-class and all that. Uh, because one of the alignments that I always feel kind of gets left out a little bit is the lawful evil one. One where you can have, you know, two paladins, one good, lawful good, one lawful evil, that are still able to function together because of their, you know, lawful aspect. It's just who they answer to. And so having all of those different conflicts of interest 
that are all kind of faced in the same direction of letting this Trask out, I think is is really going to be where DMs are going to give their players that moment to shine where, uh, you know, normally it wouldn't be a lawful evil character that's saving the day. In this situation, they could very well kind of save the day. Oh, absolutely. Just going through your outline, making sure I, I uh, touch all the kind of questions we talked about. Yes. So you mentioned, um, you know, how, how Salt and Wounds compares to other settings. I would say that Salt and Wounds is a bit interesting in that one of my game design kind of uh, touchstones is I wanted to make uh, a proverbial campaign city, right? So ideally, this is the city where enough is going on and it's interesting enough that your players can have the entire arc just in the city, right? Um, also, uh, kind of talking about how this can be added to other settings, uh, the other game design touchstone is I want it to be justifiably self-contained, right? So depending on how kind of your larger campaign word, if you will, that works you're going to slide it in, is this is a city that kind of feeds itself, and uh, it can absolutely be tied to the global economy, and also it can be a legendary kind of hush thing, because it's kind of isolated up in the mountains, and it's kind of a pain to get there. So you get to decide about how integrated it is to the rest of your game world. And so I, I wanted to make it work as kind of a, a module to be able to slot into the widest range of stuff that you could do. Uh, I will say another thing too is after I'm done with Salt and Wounds, um, I want to make the bigger world that it is uh, kind of set in. And with that one, uh, biggest comparison I can make is there was a guy who wrote about something, I think it was called the Tippyverse, where he really looked at the magic and he created a working in-game kind of economy um, with the magic as written, right? So all trade is done by teleportation circles and basically every city-state is run by its own like 20th level wizard or sorcerer and the outside world has kind of been abandoned with random monsters, it's just these barbarian tribes and it was a really fascinating um, look at just seeing how it was written and running it through its course. And that's one thing I wanted to do with uh, Salt and Moons and then also the bigger word of Sonoma is, okay, there's epic level magic in the world. What kind of political structure works in that kind of world? And the idea for kind of the bigger world Salt and Moons is part of is it's basically a world trapped in a magical world war where the closest political analog I could figure out to you know epic level magic is uh, nuclear weapons, where every side has enough... Um, magic to basically eliminate life on the planet, right? Yeah. Um, and so they're kind of locked in the stalemate and they had a big war where a lot of really horrible things happened. And now the role of adventurers is you're like the, um, something in between Indiana Jones and Super Spies <laughs> where you're going around to other countries and trying to get their artifact without them knowing but your home country will always betray you if they can or need to. Um, but you have both policy and liability and it's kind of that thing where again, close analog being the Cold War where there's a bunch of proxy wars where the great powers kind of figure things out. Um, and there's all this espionage and uh, espionage and stuff below the radar. And that's pretty much the role of adventurers is you are the smallest group that can get in, get out, and potentially respond very fast to emergent threats um, because normal armed forces are kind of not going to be able to handle weird monsters and you're just going to be faster. That's really cool. I like that idea. Yeah. Sort of jumping back to the Tarasque and how you were mentioning that its uh, sort of binding has caused other creatures in the world to begin gaining more power. I was wondering if there are more than one Tarasque in your setting, because uh, usually there's only, well, as the law states in uh, 5e, that 
this thing is like a force of nature and that there's only really ever one of these things. Uh, is that the same in your setting? Uh, well, uh, in the setting, and again, you don't have to use this if you don't want to, um, but one of the secrets is the Tarrasque is pregnant. Oh, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, and really no one knows that because they can't get that deep into it. Um, but yeah, uh, that is totally a thing that's part of the lore, right? And you can skip it if you want. But that's totally part of the established lore and um, kind of where that goes and what you do with it. It's a great question. How many, probably... eggs, how many eggs would a Tarrasque clutch uh, contain? <laughs> uh, great question. I haven't, I haven't stated that. I will probably have an official answer because it'll probably be part of the adventure path. But uh, good question for you. How many eggs do you think a Tarrasque should have? 5,000. I want to see the earth. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, uh, I just saw on um, uh, DM's Guild, uh, there's a module called Invasion from the Planet of Tarasks. Yes. Yeah. yeah I think so, I that as well. Yeah. So I think I haven't, I haven't read it yet, but I really enjoy the author. Yeah. So this is uh, James Indrasco, I believe you pronounced his last name. Uh-huh. Uh, great guy. Um, and yeah, he just released a module. It's, if you want the multiple terrasse, I think he might already have that on lock. Uh, it's a 20th level adventure, and yeah, invasion from the planet of terrasse. That is awesome. Yeah, that was eventually one thing that we were probably going to end up hitting. Uh, in the podcast, we're going to be doing a terrasse challenge where uh, I take uh, where our patrons vote on their favorite from each episode arc or their favorite from each person that's been on. And once we get a party of seven or eight, uh, probably seven because of the podcast restraints. Uh, we're going to throw them all at a Tarrasque and see what happens, just to basically see how these homebrews stack up uh, against the quote-unquote ultimate creature uh, in D&D. So, yeah, I was going to look at that one for some uh, fodder material later to throw uh, at the players. Yeah, and I also, uh, again, when we're on the subject of Tarrasque, I want to give a shout-out to the Book of Tarrasque by Encoded Designs. Yes! Um, which is excellent. Um, the guys did incredible work. It has a ton of lore and item options um, about the Tarrasque. And yeah, if you're interested in the Tarrasque and other things you can do with it, um, I think it's an incredible book. It truly is. Uh, that is one thing that I I was searching and searching for the monster to be kind of the ultimate challenge because as I'm sure you know, a lot of homebrew material, sometimes they are set to take down a specific type of creature or a specific situation and a lot of homebrew ends up being single target and so I yep. couldn't think up a good way to to do that and so yeah the Tarrasque is definitely one. Uh, the One of the other reasons I was drawn to the Saltonwood setting is one has been kind of brought down for, uh, it's still alive but has been basically brought down so that's awesome. Oh yeah, well and, and again with that idea is uh, humans are the ultimate, humans and demi-humans are the ultimate thing, right? Because yeah. there is nothing scarier than a party of adventurers Yes, <laughs> uh, like I will tell you that. Like all the monsters are great, but if you do need an end game boss, the party of adventurers will always have the weird mix of unpredictable abilities um, and just how much they. Again, when you're fighting four or more opponents, how much uh, it breaks the action economy um, yes. in terms of even something you know incredible like the Tarrasque. Uh, adventuring parties are scarier monsters to my mind. Yeah, well, like we had uh, Mike and uh, Mike played the uh, Idolist, I believe it was, and he had a gargantuan-sized warg that swallowed an angel and a demon at one point, and mechanically, it it was written in that it would work that way. So there's also oh, yeah. oh and he, he also ate the yes 
He did. He ate the demigorgon. That's right. So <laughs> it's uh, yeah. There are some some ways to break that break that uh, system uh, that way. <laughs> oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and then ultimately, um, uh, it's very common uh, for great monster design. They usually have a glass jaw somewhere. Yes. And it's really figuring out like, okay, where is the vulnerable point in this monster? And that's, I mean, honestly, it's good game design to do that because that way you're giving every PC a chance to shine, hopefully. Exactly. And speaking of homebrew and uh, all the fun stuff you can do with it, we're hoping to, at some point, uh, do a homebrew review set in the Salt and Moon setting. Uh, can you talk about some of the different things that you have planned for, uh, like, different archetypes or races or subclasses? Can you give us a little bit of a teaser of what to expect there? Yeah, um, definitely. So, um, what's out right now, uh, by the time this is posted, the campaign setting will be available. Um, That's got a bunch of unique monsters and some stats for random encounters. Mm -hmm. But that book is largely uh, crunch light. Um, The books that are already out that are crunch heavier are um, The Corruption of the Tarrasque Mutation Supplement and uh, the, look up the actual title. Um, uh, Oh, I'm sorry, Cutting Up the Tarrasque. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, which is the crafting and alchemy supplement. Um, and both of those have archetypes. Um, one is for the primordial blood sorcerer, um, with the idea of that one is the Tarrasque is the last of the like titan race called the primordials that preceded the gods. Um, and he was actually cursed to be in the state, um, but he's the only one left alive. But anyway, your sorcerer kind of background is that you've been touched by the blood of these um, primordial creatures, um, which kind of were about... Uh, kind of playing against the type of the Tarrasque. We're all about art and creativity at an inhuman scale. Um, and then uh, kind of more the squicky kind of body mod uh, in uh, um, carving up the Tarrasque is the Aetherist monk, who is kind of like an internal alchemy monk, where his deal is that he has learned how to use uh, his own subtle energies and kind of his own kind of glands um, to produce magical effects where he's modifying his form um, and having magical effects on himself as part of his monk practice. And then there's rules for mutations and lots of stuff for um, various items and special material you can use um, with you derive from Tarrasque or other monsters if you're playing it that way. That is awesome. I noticed that um, the ghoul was a race uh, prominent in your setting as well. I wonder if that's like a traditional ghoul spawned from Orcus or is there something else going on there? Oh, yeah. So those are a little bit different. Those are um, alchemical ghouls um, where they built a custom um, disease, ghoulification disease in the city. Um, and they based it off of some ghouls they found. And those guys are can actually be citizens. And so that will be in the player's guide, which I hope to put out in a couple um, months here. And that one's going to be very crunch heavy because what you're going to have in that book is a bunch of backgrounds, um, a, a, uh, an archetype for every class. Um, and then a bunch of racial options, including the ghoul, so you can be a ghoul citizen. I will tell you, though, um, it's a bad idea to be a ghoul because, again, you can play it differently at your table, but rules is written. Uh, if you miss a meal, you start becoming less intelligent, and there's no way to recover that. Oh, so wow. you are you're, you have some advantages in being a dead, right? But uh, you also have to eat just a ton of stuff, which isn't a problem if you need the rotting flesh of the drask. But if you mess up or if you get too far away from the city, you're very much at risk of slowly becoming basically a mindless undead. So you definitely don't recommend someone playing a ghoul in, say, the Dark Sun setting or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, you could you could hang out with like the cannibalist of Hobbits and just make sure a cannibal halflings, I should say, and just make sure you eat enough. But yeah, it would be again, it's it's a risk reward thing, right? Uh, there's advantages, but if you mess up, there's gonna be some consequences that you probably aren't gonna like as your character, especially if you're something that relies on intelligence. But also, if you're going to go to hell instead, maybe maybe it's a better idea to become a ghoul. Ghoul. Um, uh, the other thing, of course, is that once you do that, the only one of the Meridian houses has the license to create ghouls, so you're usually going to be deeply in debt to them, and or uh, you will be considered unlicensed ghoul, and you'll be subject to summary uh, destruction if you're found out. So again, risk-reward. Um, uh, becoming an undead, it might be a good idea for your character, but I don't think you should probably seek it out. I wouldn't seek it out, I should say. That is really cool, and it kind of adds a bit of a for flavor, kind of an option of coming back if you have suffered a mortal wound kind of a thing. It does offer players kind of a second life to a character that they aren't necessarily willing to let go of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, very much so. Uh, and, of course, uh, the Revenant is a good uh, official kind of archetype for doing that, right? Um, kind of like that, but more squicky, more body horror, and um, yeah. more downside. That is really cool. Um, and then for also, uh, while we're on the, the subject of homebrew and whatnot, uh, how easily would this be to kind of pick up and place into somebody's homebrew type world? Like how how expansive is the campaign? Do you have or the setting? Do you have an entire world set up, or is it more localized, like a country or something like that? So, like I said, I have an idea of a world that is built around this, right? But in publishing the Saltman setting, I really designed it. I want you to be able to pick it up and drop it in your world. And so, if basically I'll, I'll put it like this: if you have a mountain range that is largely unpopulated. Salt and wounds can easily go into one of those valleys. Um, they are self-contained. They feed themselves, and it can so easily slot in there. And I have advice and suggestions on exactly how to integrate it to your world and how you want to play that out. Whether you make it kind of like a bubble kingdom, or if you want it to be heavily um, involved in kind of the economy and how the world works. You could almost, uh, as a DM, looking at the timeline and some of the first pages of the document, you could almost. Uh, forecast a Tarrasque encounter, say, and as the players kill it, have the sort of salt and wounds take form then and sort of start building on from there. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. Um, that would be in a very different city to dial that back, right? Because it, it would take a while for the city to accrete. Mm-hmm. But you're absolutely right. You could easily start that. And if I think if you were really ambitious, um, what I would do is I would have an entire campaign uh, culminating in the Tarrasque where the heroes find it, and then have another campaign set 200 years in the future, and where those players had that battle, um, that's now Salt Wounds. That is yeah, really cool. Exactly. That'd be awesome. Yeah. That would. Uh, one other thing, I know you do a lot uh, uh, with your column with Tribality and everything, uh, and that alchemy is huge within the Salt and Wounds setting. Is the alchemist class there um, kind of a bigger main uh i don't want to call it kind of a main class there but because of how big alchemy is is that something that uh would be fairly common in that setting or uh because that is more homebrew and less official is that something you're kind of pushing back a little bit oh no that's a huge part of the setting um i actually uh as part of the kickstarter one of the things people got was the alchemist um supplement 
mm-hmm. um, uh, by Rich Howard, which is just an incredible uh, job on the class of making an alchemist. Um, there are multiple alchemist characters. Uh, they are all doing their thing. Um, they are heavily involved in the economy of the city uh, because they have access to all these magical reagents um, from the Jurassic. Um, and they're very much involved in kind of the intrigue of the city. Um, in fact, uh, a lot of the standalone kind of adventures I'm making in Salt Moons uh, heavily feature um, alchemists. That is awesome. Yeah, that's uh, where I first heard it was on the uh, GM showcase with uh, everybody playing basically a different alchemist, if I remember correct, uh, when uh, that was ran, the Salton Woods. So that is really a fantastic idea with the uh, alchemist. I, I like the idea of the fact that the Tarrasque is so centralized that it has kind of created its own subclass almost of uh, a class simply based on the fact that they are within this setting. So that is really cool. Oh, yeah. And I mean, uh, one of the other things, too, that I definitely thought about in creating the setting and some of the supplements is I don't know about you guys, but so often in my games, um, people kill a cool monster that has you know some awesome ability, right? Like poison. They mm-hmm. really want to harvest that if you use that. Um, it's very common that there is like I think this is the entire popular popularity of the video game Monster Hunter series, right? Yeah, it's like, oh, go go kill interesting things, and you can have more interesting gear. Uh, and that's definitely something I wanted to bring up in the fact that they have, you know, subjugated and are harvesting this really incredible creature. And what are the cool, um, both obvious and less obvious things you could do with that? Exactly, and I'm almost uh, hope, or I'm almost uh, wondering how disappointed Mike is going to be that he already reviewed the chef class uh, when, uh, and now we're talking about this because uh, uh, I know that that is something, especially with a god of butchers. Essentially, uh, I know that is something that he would have been super interested in. So maybe he can uh, find another subclass or something that he can do a chef or a cook with uh, for this for sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, Mason Fex, the god of butchers, would be a great god for many cooks. Um, actually, uh, that reminds me of the last book, I, the last big book I did for the Adabrick Commoner. The adventure is you're all cooks um, trying to survive in this crazy city. And when I <laughs> run it for players, I've often said it insult. That is awesome. Yeah. But those guys were not, uh, like, cool, like, actually static cooks. They were all commoners. Yeah. Yeah. That is awesome. I, that I really love how you have a lot of uh, sort of food options and things like that that uh, the players can draw from if they do want to be a cook or something along those lines. Oh yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Well, and it's that thing of I love bringing sensory detail to games, um, and so I was really happy to add a lot of food information in Salt Ones because you know that's a huge part of it. Also, as part of the, uh, I haven't said this out yet, but I'm, this is one of the things I'm most excited to deliver the reward for is, uh, depending on the backer level, they get terastrophy. Oh my um, gosh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is fantastic. It sounds absolutely terrible, but still, that is very, very intriguing. <laughs> 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 All right, then. Uh, I guess the next bit is, uh, I know we communicate a little bit on email about it, but uh, we have talked about doing the homebrew review in the Salt in Wounds setting. Uh, what could people be looking forward to with that? Some of the different, I know you talked a little bit about some of the options that come with that. Are there any teasers as to what all happens within the city that would take place over the uh, expanse of a campaign? Because uh, we do run the homebrew review at 4, 8, 12, 16, and 20. What would kind of be a, a brief teaser of what could happen? 
Okay, so brief teaser of what could happen in that. Betrayals, surprises, people fighting a horde of uh, flesh golems that were built out of the flesh of Karas. Or Karas, <laughs> I should say. Um, a trial, um, and potentially the consequences of that trial. Some really, really weird and awful parties that the participants are really excited about. And ultimately, probably for that for that arc, deciding the ultimate fate of the Tarask and Salt and Wound City, because you know that that is what twentieth level characters are for. That is fantastic, and uh, I know you mentioned uh, DMing it yourself, correct? Yeah, I'm game. That is awesome. Uh, then you will be the first di- guest DM on uh, the Homebrew Review, so I am ex- very very excited about that. I've been running this for almost a year, and. Uh, sorry, uh, everybody. I'm already calling dibs on one of those slots, so uh, fight me. <laughs> <laughs> so I am very, very excited for what all is going to come up with that. I guess then going on from there, uh, what would be kind of, uh, before we move on to the DM recommendation, what would be your favorite thing about this setting? What is the one thing that, that really drives you to continue creating it? Um, okay, so my favorite thing about this setting, and that's that's hard for me to talk about because as usual with creatives, uh, this started as something that I loved and was super passionate about. Um, and then uh, I worked on it for a long time and it got popular. And then I was so much in my own head. There was that moment where like, this is terrible. I'm terrible. Why did I ever do this? Oh my gosh, I'm a failure. Yeah, yeah. The standard like creative arc. And mm-hmm. now I'm back at just kind of like it is. Like I'm happy with it. Um, and I'm happy to get it out there. And people love it. But it's kind of that thing where I've been so deep into it. Uh, sometimes I lose perspective. But I will say this. The thing I have always loved about this setting, um, even, even throughout all of it, is I have loved taking a premise. In this case, that there is a giant, unkillable Godzilla-like monster and just figuring out what that means and accreting layer of layer of complication on the simple presence of there's a giant monster that can't die and it will recover from any wounds and now they've found it in place and they're eating it. What happens next? Okay. And then who does that affect? Okay. And then what do they do in response? Okay. And then what happens because of that? And just that back-and-forth process, uh, that iterative design, I think has made a world that is surprising even to me, uh, a world that feels, and, and I hope it will feel to the players, believable um, and really compelling um, for their choices and really fun to play in. That is awesome, yeah. that's I love that whole, I don't want to call it the tree-type system, but you start with that main idea, and then depending on the choices, it just branches and branches and branches back and forth, and yeah, that is always a really fun thing to see, because like you said, depending on what house you uh, align with, or what faction you align with, or think you're aligned with, you know, the the end goal and the end setting is going to be so drastically different while remaining kind of along the same lines of freeing the Tarrasque, or, you know, to either kill it or to have it destroy the world, or to recapture it. You know, that that whole multiple choices thing is very, very compelling for an adventure. Yeah. Awesome. So we will go ahead and move on then to the DM recommendations. We have just gotten another round of ale at our table, dubious as it may look, and I believe that Aaron is talking about something crazy, like drinking songs. 
All right. lot don't know any proper salt wounds drinking songs, really? No. But not not stab the Tarask? This, no. Well, I thought that was illegal. Well, it's fun, but illegal. No, no, these are drinking songs. They, they, you sit around the table, and you sing, and then you drink. <sighs> you guys don't know these songs. The stab the Tarask, chop the Tarask, poke the Tarask, whisper to the Tarask, ride the Tarask. You, none of these songs. My mother used to sing Whisper to the Tarrasque to put me to sleep at night. <laughs> well, it sounds like your mother was drunk. Do, do you have her uh, apartment number? Maybe she needs a visit from a dashing young gnome. <laughs> <laughs> and we will go ahead and transition now that my mother has been brought into this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but respectfully. <laughs> <laughs> So for this week, we are doing kind of along the same lines as that salt and wounds use everything you can from every kind of creature and whatnot that you can. And we are taking a look at the supplement from uh, Aaron, uh, Aaron Drake. Aaron Drake, uh, not exactly sure how to pronounce that, so I apologize uh, if that's wrong. Um, the supplement is called City and Wild, and it can be found on the DMS Guild as well as Reddit. This supplement is a really awesome combination of several different documents that all got compiled into a single guy. The author took uh, some alternate human races that they came out with, uh, took a prestige class, The Writer, which we just got done reviewing, the dragon-themed episode of the Homebrew Review, uh, as well as a bunch of feats, and the part that ties most closely into Salt Moons, what we've been talking about, is the alchemy guide, the crafting guide, some of the guilds, the different things you can do with them, as well as harvesting monster parts, essentially. How to uh, collect materials and what those materials are used for. Um, this is a very, very awesome supplement that really does bring a lot of fluff to the game that you normally wouldn't have in it. I particularly like the alternate humans, uh, just as I find humans being the most versatile race. Uh, not only in terms of their sort of adaptability to different environments, but as well as uh, being sort of changed by different supernatural forces. For instance, the Janasi tieflings, uh, Azamir, Asma. Um, but just having them be changed by the different terrain types, uh, like humans being born in the uh, frost, for instance, on the sea, and gaining different... Uh, Features and traits for that is really awesome and puts a fun little spin on uh, probably one of the more boring of uh, the races in Dungeons and Dragons. So then the only thing that the author really notes uh, that I didn't mention earlier was that the alchemy section is one that uh, he is redoing into kind of a more modular system. Um, so that is not 100% up to date yet. Uh, but other than that, uh, this document is really a neat thing to throw in if you're looking for something to do kind of in between while you're hex crawling, you know, going from city to city. This is definitely something that you can throw into your game to help kind of bring that downtime into perspective and into the actual gameplay that doesn't a lot of times happen. You know, instead of four days down the road... You have two combat encounters, and you find a dead adventurer who has a pouch and a dagger. You know, this allows you to actually add some of that uh, extra little bit into there. Uh, and I know alchemy is plays a big part of the Salt and Moon setting, so this is very easily something that you could throw in with that 
to fluff the the downtime days with different potion ingredients and everything. And it could be very easily reflavored to match the salt and wound stuff. So that uh, is a fun little bit to add in. And once again, that is from Aaron Drake, uh, Aaron Drake uh, on Reddit, as well as the DMS Guild, entitled City and Wild. All right, so for the last little bit, uh, JM, where can all of our listeners go to find out more about you, about your projects, download your stories, um, or purchase your stories? Where all can they go to do all that? Uh, best place is jmperkins.com. Just the letter J, the letter M, and then my last name, Perkins, which is P-E-R-K-I-N-S dot com. Uh, I believe there's some stuff I have to update there, but that's going to have links to pretty much everything. Um, also, uh, I quit most social media, but I'm very much available by email, john at jmperkins.com. And I'm trying to re-engage with Twitter because that's always the one I've had the most fun with. And I think that there is there's some really awesome creators there that I just want to do a better job of being part of the conversation, although I'm not always good at that. Awesome. And what would your Twitter handle be then? Oh, at J.M. Perkins. At J.M. Perkins. All right. Well, thank you very, very much, J.M. Uh, with that, we are going to go ahead and sign off for this e- or for this episode. So my wolf has decided that it really needs to go for a walk, and uh, I'm pretty sure that Boren Tumblethumb uh, would slit my throat if I let the wolf do that here within the building. So I'm definitely going to go ahead and step out here and uh, take my wolf to go do its business and possibly grab a bite to eat of some fleshy terrasque. I think that Quoth, noticing what you're doing, will look down at the ale he's drinking, realizing that this whole settlement is built off things of the terrasque, and notice this pea-colored liquid that he's drinking will probably just, like, put it down and feel a little sick. <laughs> uh, <laughs> slowly back away and then just leave. Okay. <laughs> One Ella... Uh, the thing is, don't tell people this, but he can speak to small animals. So he kind of has that Cinderella thing where different <laughs> animals come up to him and, like, whisper secrets. So a singing water lizard, uh, one of the, like, kind of rat-like creatures in salt, has come up on uh, near his table and has whispered, Hela, um, outside, there's some bigger kids being mean to some smaller kids. <laughs> so Ella, Ella will stand up at the table and be like, sounds like some children need to be introduced to my Warhammer. <laughs> that is terrible so this is where we will go ahead and end this episode of a long rest hopefully next time we meet you'll be able to hear more about the salt moon setting in the actual homebrew review podcast so go ahead and check out that Kickstarter campaign for Salt and Moons. Just search Salt and Moons. Uh, you'll get a link straight there. Pre-order it if you're able to. It is a fantastic document. I know I'm enjoying a lot of the playtest material that's out there, so check that out if you are able to. Uh, for everything else, uh, as JM said, go ahead and check out his website to hear more and to hear more from us. Or if you want to join us on the podcast, visit our Patreon account, where for just $2 a month, you can actually sit down at the table, play games with us, You are guaranteed a spot in the Chaos Plan game, one introduction mission and one regular game. And if it works well, you can go ahead and continue uh, with that through the rest of the campaign life of that, hopefully many years to come. Uh, Otherwise, you are welcome to just check out our Patreon for a dollar a month and listen to all of those games uh, being played. So thank you guys very, very much for joining me around the table. Brayden, it is always a pleasure having you on. And JM, this was a ton of fun, and I cannot believe that it is 
already at the point of having a booklet out there to actually go through and read and find out more about. Yeah, um, I, it was so great to be able to publish. Uh, I just want to again thank, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for everyone back who has supported me. It has been such inc- I have received such incredible support and it makes me happy and it makes me smile. And thank you. Thank you very much. It was uh, <laughs> lovely speaking to you, Dan. As always, yeah. lovely speaking to you, Bob. Uh, I'll see ever all the listeners soon on a homebrew review, no doubt. Uh, yeah, it's always great being on. All right, and with that, we go ahead and end this long rest. Thank you for listening to this long rest. If you would like to join our Patreon group and take part in the podcast itself, just visit us at patreon.com slash the adventuring guild. For as little as $2 a month, you can take part in the Homebrew Review podcast as well as have a guaranteed spot within the Chaos Plan. There are also many other bonuses to be had by becoming a Patreon member. Thank you once again, and we hope you'll join us again next week for an episode of the Homebrew Review. (laughs) 